Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Hey, Courtney, to paraphrase Ben Franklin, nothing in life is certain except death and taxes. Taxes. That is a distasteful topic, but it is part two in our finance extravaganza. We're back with new episodes and we're covering something that we all love to get but hate to give away, which is money. But today we're going to cover how taxes and systemic racism, two very dastardly distasteful topics, go hand in hand. Yep, Courtney, uh, we did an episode all about banking and the finance industry. And so now we're going to talk about taxes, money, 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 but taxes. And working on this podcast had made us think about systemic racism in non-traditional ways. And one of those has been in that area, particularly the American federal and state tax systems. Now, I remember being a bright-eyed 16-year-old working at Best Buy selling CDs and being so excited to get my first paycheck, only to be greeted by federal tax, state tax, and the letters F-I-C-A. And all of them had big dollars, at least to my 16-year-old mind, behind them. It seemed like I did all the work and they got all the money. I had been robbed. Yes, my dear niece, that first paycheck brings a rude awakening for most of us. There used to be an old commercial for a financial planning company with the slogan, it's not how much you earn, it's how much you keep. And if you don't know how to play the tax game, you won't get to keep much of what you earn. Yes, Aunt Carol, taxes are a big part of the game of life because they affect everything from buying a home to getting married, owning a business, even having children. It just doesn't seem fair that taxes are such a burden today. Well, Courtney, even though no one likes paying taxes and they do seem unfair, in early years, the personal federal income tax worked exactly as Congress intended it, falling squarely on the richest. That's who was supposed to pay big time. And according to historian W. Elliott Brownlee, in 1918, only 15% of American families owed any tax. So that would have been us. The top 1% paid 80% of the revenue raised. So under that system, we wouldn't even have to worry about taxes. So what changed? Well, Courtney, it's all pretty complicated. Considering the fact the federal tax code today is spread over two volumes totaling 2,652 pages, there's a lot to sort out. 
wealthy people have perfectly legal advantages in that code. And the code allows them to pay income taxes that are only a tiny fraction of the hundreds of millions, if not billions of their fortunes, even if these fortunes grow bigger every year. For example, in 2007, Jeff Bezos, now the world's richest man, did not pay a penny in federal income tax. He achieved the feat again in 2011. And in 2018, Tesla founder Elon Musk, the second richest person in the world, also paid no income taxes. Now, it would take a tax expert and several podcast episodes to explain, explain how that tax magic works. But suffice it to say that wealthy people, since the federal income tax was created many, many years ago, have been able to manipulate the laws in their favor so that federal tax burden now falls heavily on the middle and working class of America, not the most wealthy as it was intended originally to do. And of course, most Black people fall into that middle working and lower economic strata. So we know who's getting hit the hardest when it comes to taxes. You're right, my dear niece. Once again, it's not hard to see how people who have been disadvantaged by systemic racism in general are once again swimming up an economic stream. But I think you have an interesting story about how slavery and taxation we're intertwined in this country and that that intertwining has an impact even today. You're absolutely right. Think of it like a multiverse, kind of like the multiverse of taxes instead of the multiverse of madness. Now, taxes and slavery worked hand in hand in America for quite some time. Now, I know our listeners are used to me telling a story about a particular historical figure or some unknown event that affected uh, systemic racism. But today I'm going to talk about how taxes have figured into um, America's racist web, just another string in that web. Our listeners might be surprised to know that before the concept of federal personal income tax was initiated, raising money by taxing slaveholders on their enslaved people was very commonplace in America. In fact, the U.S. Constitution granted Congress the authority to tax slaves as property in Article 1, Section 9, stating, the migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by Congress prior to the year 1808, but a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation not exceeding $10 for each person. Now, even though the Constitution writers didn't use the word slave, it was well understood that the migration or importation of persons referred to slaves. The federal government also levied slave taxes from 1798 to 1802 and again in 1813 to 1817, both times to pay for wars. Now, many state constitutions also provided for what was referred to as the uniform and equal rate of taxation of all personal and real property. Also, many states not only taxed enslaved people as property, but oftentimes taxed the slaves of non-residents at higher rates than the slaves of residents. 
Now, the state of Alabama is a great example of how slavery and taxation were intertwined and the way it's still affecting the economic health of that state by warping its state finances. Now, according to Brian Limer, a reporter, uh, for decades, the slave tax was a major pillar in Alabama's tax system. He says historians estimate that at least through the mid-1850s, the tax on wealth created by the men, women, and children suffering exploitation and often physical and sexual assault was the biggest revenue source for the state government. Alabama tax assessments that year uh, included countless lists of slaves whose existence was critical on the operations of the state government since they were taxable commodities. Even though enslaved people were taxed, a slaveholder's tax bill was tiny compared to the slave's value. In 1860, an Alabama slaveholder would pay no more than a dollar and 10 cents in taxes, which is about $30 in today's money, for a 15 to 30 year old field hand. Now, the slaveholder could sell that same person for up to $1,600, which is the equivalent of $43,000 today. Wow, lucrative. Yeah, that's more than a lot of cars. Mm. In 1860, the total value of slaves in the South, according to Alabama, the history of the Deep South state, was $2 billion. And that's not in today's money. That's in the year of our Lord, 18 whatever, before so, 1865. So that, it was a lot of money. It was a lot of money. A lot, a lot of money. Now, Alabama was one of the wealthiest states in the United States at the time of the Civil War. By 1850, count cotton accounted for 50% of the United States exports and 23% of that came from Alabama. So Courtney, this, these figures really help us to understand why the civil war was fought. I mean, it's obviously keeping people enslaved was an economic boom. Slavery was the reason for the civil war period, because it was an economic engine. Of course, who wouldn't want to get rid of a workforce that could recreate itself and not fight back? Of course, if I'm only paying 30 bucks on something that's worth 1600 or I'm sorry, in today's money, 43000 I'm not going to want to give that up. Mm-mm. Now, non-slaveholding whites may not have enjoyed the wealth. So here comes the group that says, well, my family didn't even own slaves. So this isn't about me. It is about you, and I'm going to tell you how. Those non-slaveholding whites, they didn't enjoy the, the wealth at the top tier, but they benefited from the system. In the antebellum era, historians estimate the wealthiest third of the citizenry paid at least two-thirds of the taxes, which meant poor people had a lower tax burden since the wealthy were paying the higher tax. It was based on their wealth. Now, to make sure the slave tax remained lucrative, Alabama legislators took a drastic step. Now, in 1839, the legislature approved a law that allowed any person to seize any free Black person who had entered the state since 1832 and make them a slave. And let that settle in. Just any free Black person, whosoever will, 
I need a couple thousand dollars. Get over here. Okay. So the <laughs> landowner got a, got the boon and the government got it too in taxes. Okay. Exactly. That same year, the legislator approved a measure that required the imprisonment of free Black people serving on ships that came to Alabama until the ship left the harbor. So imagine being free, working on a ship, having an actual job, and just because your ship docked in Alabama and you were black, into jail you go. Well, I'll tell you what, <laughs> you better check where where a ship is headed before you get on it back then. Yeah, I'm not signing up for any five-hour cruises going to Alabama in 1832, I'll tell you that. Now, slaveholders were compensated for losing an enslaved person as well. In 1843, the legislator, legislative approved a one and two percent taxes on slaves to create a fund to place pay slaveholders if the state executed their slaves for capital crimes. So they, okay. were, getting, they <laughs> were getting paid. So the person doesn't get paid. The slave doesn't get paid. You get paid to, you know, you get reparations. You know, if your slave commits a crime, we're going to pay you back for the property that you lost. Wow. Wow. I, it's just it's mind boggling. What how else did this play out now? By 1860, the legislator forbade the emancipation of any slave and removing in any slave from the state. So I think they kind of knew what was coming down the pipeline. So you couldn't you know, remove any slave out of the state. It was against the law. Now, all of these measures, of course, created a larger enslaved pool to tax. But taxes also extended to free Blacks. In 1862, a free Black man paid $5 in taxes compared to the 75 cents for a white man. Such a tax burden often meant a free person could lose his land for failing to pay taxes. And that could also mean enslavement. So you don't pay your taxes, you go to jail or you're you know, out and about. Well, now you're a slave. So you've gone from free to losing your land and now you're a slave. And now the state can tax the landowner for the slaves that they have gotten. It- And if you listen to our land theft podcast, because it's all the web, remember that, guys, think of all that land that was stolen before the Civil War. Those people didn't just get run out of town. They got put into slavery that they might not have even been born into. But the lucrative income states were making by taxing enslaved people could not last forever. That house of cards had to come crashing down. No doubt. No doubt. Now, Alabama was an example of most slaveholding states that figured out how to make the misery of slavery pay big tax dollars. Uh, But you're right, Courtney, it had to end. And I think we all know when and how. So let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll hear how this tax saga played out. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry? And connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com. Why are they so angry? See you there. 
Okay, we're back, Courtney. And you were telling how Southern slaveholding states like Alabama seem to have a tax cash cow through slavery. What happened to change that? Well, the slave tax, meanwhile, it it remained a pillar of Alabama finances for years. The tax accounted for 46% of all state revenue in Alabama in 1849. Now, as I mentioned earlier, taxes on slaves weren't limited to Alabama. In a 2003 article, Boston University School of Law professor Kevin Outerson wrote that the slave tax brought anywhere from 30 to 60% of the public funding in slaveholding states. Slave taxation was big revenue building for states, but it all came crashing down in a way that still affects the financial health of these very states today. The slave tax evaporated after the Civil War, but the services it paid for did not. Okay, so basically, they lost the tax revenue, but the services that were being paid for with that tax revenue still had to be maintained, right? Exactly. Now, during Reconstruction, Republicans tried to make up the difference with property taxes, the only major source of revenue that was left. But that tax embittered residents that had grown used to slaveholders paying most of the taxes. And that leans again into that narrative of my family didn't own slaves. It was only the rich people. It's not our fault, but you were benefiting from it. And now you're mad at the population who caused that to go away. So that web is getting tighter and growing wider as the years progress. When Democrats recovered control of the legislature in 18. 74. They called a constitutional convention. And that convention created a document that began the disenfranchisement of Black voters while simultaneously capped property taxes. And you know whose fault that was, and I'm not going to say his name. But (laughs) subsequent legislators imposed even more stringent property tax caps, but never took steps to impose taxes to replace the lost slave tax. Now, even though Alabama has a state income tax, those revenues do not generate the monies needed to operate effectively. So under segregationist Governor George Wallace, property taxes were restricted even more. According to historian J. Mills Thornton, tax policy is one of the most festering wounds of slavery. So not the KKK. You know, we talk about so many other things, but the biggest festering wound, according to this historian, is tax policy. Those revenue shortfalls are one of the lasting legacies of slavery that left states' governments like Alabama across and, and across the South struggling to pay their bills. So, Courtney, here's where we can pull a thread to our podcast on mass incarceration of Black people, which has been a way to generate state revenues. So true. Uh, Rapper Killer Mike uh, said in one of his speeches, there will always be a slave class. And in our podcast, we revealed that that slave cast, it was Black and it was the prison population. Now, when Southern states lost the ability to tax slaveholders for their enslaved workers, they used Black codes and laws to 
like we said in that other podcast, unjustly arrest and imprison large numbers of Black men and women who became a lucrative part of the convict leasing system. And you can learn more about that in books like Slavery by Another Name. States would lease these convicts to companies who needed cheap labor, and the states and local governments profited from those revenues. So here we have it, that vicious cycle. And if you don't know how about this and you don't study history, you'll never know how all these things link together. Even today, companies like McDonald's, Sprint, and even Victoria's Secret use cheap convict labor to produce their products or provide services. A fraction of the money is paid to the prisoner and the rest is paid to the state or local government that gives the company the contract. And that speaks to that slave class. So it looks like profiting from people kept in bondage is still going on in Carol. It's just in a different form. Something also tells me that systemic racism through taxation has been morphed into something else that's detrimental to black people. Am I right? Well, you are indeed, my dear niece. The author, Dorothy Brown, would say systemic racism and taxation are definitely intertwined today, just as in the 19th century South. In her book, The Whiteness of Wealth, she delves deeply into the American tax code to show how it advantages whites over African-Americans. In effect, she says the system is designed to do exactly what it was created to do make things easier for whites. She argues that well-off, mostly white Americans litigated and lobbied their way into making sure the federal tax code protects their wealth. Black Americans who typically lack family wealth were left out and deliberately held back. Brown said what she learned while researching her book is that marriage, home ownership, jobs, paying for college, all of these are used to advantage whites and disadvantage blacks. Well, how do you sort it all out and let alone spot the systemic racism in it? Yes, yes, it's a complicated topic, Courtney, just like taxes. And that's why average folks probably don't try to unravel it or understand why federal as well as most state tax laws are systemically racist. But I urge our listeners to read the American Bar Association article that's titled Black Taxpayers Matter, Anti-Racist Restructuring of U.S. Tax Systems. It's one of the simplest explanations I've read of why and how the federal and state tax systems are systemically racist. Listeners are going to find the reference to that article in the show notes, and we'll refer to it often uh, a little bit later on in this episode. Now, I agree, Aunt Carol, that article clearly shows how taxes unfairly benefit whites over blacks. One of the simpler places to start understanding how taxes harm black folks is the difference between progressive taxes and regressive taxes. A progressive tax takes a larger percentage of income from high income groups than from low income groups and is based on the concept of ability to pay. A progressive tax system might, for example, tax low-income taxpayers at 10%, middle-income taxpayers at 15%, and high-income taxpayers at 30%. On the other hand, regressive taxes place more burden on low-income earners. They take a higher percentage of income from the poor than from high-income earners. 
For example, taxes on most consumer goods, sales, gas, social security, payroll, and so-called sin taxes like cigarettes and alcohol are examples of regressive taxes. These are proportional taxes that have a greater impact on low earners because they spend more of their income on taxes on these certain items than other taxpayers. Well, Courtney, thanks for that clear explanation. I learned about regressive taxes the first time I bought clothes in Texas. I'll never forget the shock I experienced when the clerk said my total uh, was quite a bit over the price tags on the clothes I was trying to buy. That's when I experienced sales tax sticker shock because in addition to the cost of the clothing, I was hit with an 8.25% regressive sales tax. Now, let's switch gears to show how regressive taxes hurt folks. Congress has decreased taxes on wealth. So if someone makes more money, they probably get to keep more of it. Also, state and local governments have reduced reliance on income and property taxes, replacing them with more sales and other consumptive taxes. In other words, those regressive taxes that you describe. Now, since high income earners have lower federal and state tax rates, they are able to add more to their wealth every year compared to low income earners, those low income earners who are paying those regressive taxes. Also, they can even choose to live in states that raise revenues through regressive taxes rather than progressive income taxes, thus saving even more money and increasing wealth. But that's not all, Aunt Carol. The American Bar Association in that article that we pointed out shows that people who can who can take tax deductions for home equity, pensions, medical insurance, um, K through 12 education and college went out in the tax game. The benefit of tax deductions increases the taxpayer's household income. So the biggest benefits go to taxpayers who are employed full time, who own their own homes, who can afford to buy homes in neighborhoods with high quality schools and those that can afford to save and invest. And guess what, Courtney? The taxpayers you just described are disproportionately white not Black folks. That ABA article calls it a form of welfare for wealthy white taxpayers and the equivalent of historical whites-only wealth building. So once again, systemic racism comes into play even when it comes to taxes. So like we always ask, what can be done to fix this? Well, it's a, a real, real tough cookie to even think about approaching. But according to the ABA article, there, of course, is no single solution for curing those inequities that are inherent in our tax system. But there may be a way to address some of those and in turn reduce some of those inequities. First of all, let's go back to that business of progressive and regressive taxes. By using progressive income taxes, Public expenditures can be made on investments in education, neighborhood revitalization, and public transportation. Now, why is that important? Well, these all tend to address racial inequities in communities of color. And so a progressive, a high progressive income tax could pour money into those types of uh, remedies. Secondly, 
like we said earlier, federal, state, and local tax expenditures, they actually provide what I call an upside down tax break system that disproportionately benefits white households by subsidizing home ownership, college education, retirement, and so on, just as you mentioned earlier. That approach needs to be reevaluated or redirected to provide tax breaks such as the refundable earned income tax credit and partially refundable child tax credit, which have been proven to lift more children and their families out of poverty than any government program. Data show that those tax credits increased the household income of 9 million women of color, helping them overcome systemic racism in employment and related outcomes, uh, related opportunities. And so it does work. So what about addressing the ultra wealthy? Well, that's a touchy one too. It could be done by raising capital gains tax rates, by taxing unrealized capital gains at death and increasing gift taxes. Now these changes would shift more tax burden to the rich who can uh, benefit most from those breaks. And another thing that could happen is we could increase the corporate tax rate. That would help a great deal too. Now, taxes are a hot topic and the complexity is mind boggling. I don't expect solutions too soon, though, since it appears that the people in power don't have much of an incentive to change the tax code. Well, you've nailed it, Courtney. To the wealthy, the old adage is true. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. That definitely applies to federal and state tax systems that benefit them, yet ultimately create a systemically racist tax quagmire. Well, that brings our two-parter on finances to an end. But if you want to re-listen, share, reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or just see what's going on on our website, be sure to visit us at www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry? That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.